Wonderful song. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Making our way through the book. We're doing it rather slowly, but we're making progress. And we are in chapter 4 this morning. We're going to begin in verse number 1, which if you were here last week, uh, you remember that we finished in chapter 4, verse 1. So we'll just briefly review a little bit and then move in, making just a few progress steps in by the end of verse number 3. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I'll just make a disclaimer before we read it and pray and get into it. This was a sermon that was planned long ago. Uh, I mentioned on Wednesday night that uh, we gathered and a unique, uh, this was a, a unique convergence of three different events happening in the same weekend. First of all, we had a business meeting on Wednesday. Uh, then to, uh, this afternoon, after the morning service, we have communion, and then we have a sermon from these three verses. These verses were not planned in response to communion or in response to a business meeting that was going to happen or that did happen. And so uh, I, I think you'll see the connection that all three have, but I just want to make sure that you know this is the next place we are, and that's why we are here. Uh, but we will see some very helpful uh, relevance and illustration as we consider these verses this weekend. Let me read Philippians chapter 4, first three verses. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would add your blessing not only to the reading of these, these words, but the other scriptures that we've had read for us. Give us ears to see the truth, and, and or ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us an understanding that goes far beyond a, a, a rudimentary knowledge of, of the Bible. We don't desire just to know things. We don't desire to be just encouraged or just instructed. We desire to be sanctified. We recognize and we understand that we are sanctified through the word of truth. This morning we submit to it. We bow before it. We open our hearts to receive it. And we ask that you would fill us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you have read through uh, the, the final chapter of Philippians, uh, this, this, uh, these last 23 verses here, uh, if you're not familiar or if you've just kind of taken a casual reading of the verses, you'll find that it is uh, just kind of, it seems to be just command after command, almost as if, Paul is finishing out his, um, his letter. Can we just get someone to shut that back door? Thank you. The, uh, Paul is finishing out his letter, and it's almost as if Paul is just throwing in the last little things that, he is, uh, that, he, that comes to mind as he kind of runs out of space on his, on his papyrus. That's not at all what Paul is doing, although it may seem that way. What we have, in fact, in chapter 4 is practical illustration of everything that he had been teaching the first three chapters. 
And so I will depend on you to rely a little bit on some previous knowledge of the last three chapters, although I think you can get the, the gist of where we're going with, uh, without that, but it would be more, more helpful to you. And if you're not familiar with it, then I'd encourage you to go back and read the first three chapters of Philippians this afternoon. But based on the previous teaching of Philippians 1-3, through 3, Paul now provides some very practical illustrations as to how they can put these truths into practice. And what he starts off with here in verse number 2 is a rather significant disagreement between two ladies in the church. These two ladies are sisters in Christ. They belong to the joy and the crown that Paul has mentioned in verse number 1. They are part of the church. They are not enemies of the cross like Paul spoke about in chapter 3. Rather, these are co-laborers in the Gospel. If you look down in verse number 3, you see that he describes them as such. These are sisters in the Lord. These are uh, the joy and the crown. These are uh, women whose names are written in the book of life. And yet, there is a significant disagreement. Now, Paul does not spend a whole lot of time telling us about this disagreement. He doesn't give any of the details. But we can deduce a few things that will help us to understand why it's even here in the first place. First of all, this is probably a long-standing disagreement. You remember where Paul is when he's writing this letter. He's not, uh, he's not across town. He's not next door to the church. He's not seen these people for quite some time. He's sitting in a Roman prison. And yet the news has traveled far, far enough and lasted long enough that when it gets to Paul, he recognizes that this is not just a little tiff. They've not gotten over it. Things have not resolved themselves, and so if Paul feels uh, required, responsible, to address this situation. Not only is this a significant disagreement, we see this as a public disagreement. We don't know the details, but the ladies did. Probably the church did. Think about the letter to the Philippians. It's not a personal letter. This is a public letter being read to the entire church, meant for the benefit of the entire church, and yet Paul takes space on the document to address a situation that is, at least on a surface level, only between two people. Why couldn't they handle that on their own? Why couldn't Paul address that privately? Because it was a public issue, even though it seemed like it was between two, two women. Paul recognizes the need to specifically address a what may seem as a private matter because in fact it is a public matter. And I think thirdly, we can see that this is a dangerous disagreement because of its public nature, because of the, the fact that Paul spent time in his letter to address this shows that the disagreement that these ladies had, the quarrel that these ladies had between themselves was a threat to the unity of the church. It was a poison that was threatening to do damage to the body in Philippi. And we have seen time through, time again, and particularly in Philippians, that the church of Christ must be unified. We must have unity. Not for unity's sake. Not so that we all get along and we're all happy. But for much greater reasons. For the sake of the Gospel. For the sake of Christ. Unity, then, is essential if we are going to stand firm. As he speaks of in verse number 1, they are to stand firm. 
And we see, and we saw last week, why he talks about this, uh, the need to stand firm because there are really bad examples out there in the world. And as Paul closed out chapter 3, he talked about these bad examples that are, that are enemies of the cross and their end is to, headed to destruction and yet they're, they're de- deviating people from the path. They are deviating people from following after Christ and following to their own destruction. And Paul says that this, this uh, unity that he spoke of in chapter 3, that he continues in chapter, um, he spoke of in chapter 2, he continues in chapter 3, is essential if the church is going to be of any good for the gospel's sake. He spoke of it in chapter 1. If you peek back there, you'll see in verse number 27, Paul says that, uh, that let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, notice, standing firm in one spirit. They're not standing as individuals, but standing as a team. Standing as a a cohesive unit. And this is what Paul is getting after there. As he says, standing firm uh, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. This is the, the crux of the letter to Philippians. This is what Paul wants them to do. And we see in chapter 2, he gets a little bit more specific in talking about unity and saying that we must be unified in the way that we think. The way that we think will determine the way that we behave. How must Christians think? We must think and act like Christ. And we see the beautiful hymn uh, about Jesus in chapter number 2. And we see that we must be like Christ in the way that we think, in the way that we act, the way that we speak and talk with one another. If you're familiar with the book of Philippians, you've probably heard a hundred different themes on what is the theme of the book of Philippians. And I have one, and I have the mic, and so I'll share with you mine. You can disagree, but I'll make a case for mine. If we were to summarize the entire theme of the book of Philippians, we could put it into one word, and I think it's gospel. The theme, the point of Paul sending this letter to these people is the gospel. We see that they, throughout the, book, the letter they are to stand firm for it. They are to suffer well for it. They are to strive together for it. They are to partner together in it. They are to have a gospel mindset. And they will not do these things. They will not advance the Gospel. They will not stand firm in it. They will not partner together in it. They will not co-labor with, uh, with one another in it if they are first distracted by false teachers, which he has addressed in chapter 3, or if they are distracted by fighting and quarrels with one another, as we see in chapter 4. There's really not a lot of negativity directed towards the church in Philippi except for this particular issue right here. And to be honest, it's not the fault of the entire church. It's really a quarrel between two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. But Paul recognizes that this problem threatens not only the unity of the church, but in doing so threatens the Gospel of Christ. It threatens the witness. It threatens the the testimony to the world. Because one disagreement between two people, two women in this case, but it's not because they're women, it's just two people, can poison an entire church. And so notice what Paul does first of all. He says in verse number 2, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche. This word 
Entreat is the word parakalo. It means to urge. It means to, to beg, even. Paul is saying, I, I desperately, I, I want you ladies to hear me now. I want you to listen to what I am saying. And he says, I urge you, I entreat you to do what? To agree. To agree in the Lord. Notice here, Paul is not taking sides. This is part of the problem with disagreements uh, between people. Is that if you're not one of those two people in the disagreement, eventually you have to choose sides. Unless we're in a mature, uh, a mature setting and people recognize you can be neutral. You can be objective. But no, more, more often than not, when there's, when there's a, this person versus this person and you're the friend of both or you're connected to both, you have to pick a side. And to pick one person's side is to basically be the enemy of the other side. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, listen, Yodia, uh, uh, I entreat you. Syntyche, I entreat you. You need to agree in the Lord. And Paul is, is urging them, pleading with them, begging with them to reconcile. They need to be brought back together. They need to agree in the Lord. What does it mean to agree? This is the word that we have seen seven times already just in this letter. It's the, it's the word that is translated to think. It's the word that we've seen in chapter 2 about having the mind of Christ. It's a mindset. And this is what Paul is getting after with these ladies. Ladies, you need to agree in the Lord. You need to have the, the mind of Christ you need to realign your thinking. As I said, it's used seven times in the letter. It's one of Paul's favorite words to use as he talks to Christians. And he says you need to agree. You need to think the same way. Literally, that's what it means. To think the same way. That word is used in a phrase only one other time outside of Philippians. And we see it in the book of Romans, chapter 15. And there it's translated to live in harmony with one another. And that's what Paul's getting after. Because Paul could certainly not expect them to think alike. That's not what he means by agree. You need to have the same preferences. You need to have the same opinions. You need to never think anything differently than what we tell you to think. That's not what he's saying. Because that's not possible. We're all very different. We all have different uh, experiences, different backgrounds. We have different tastes. And, and God made us that way. We like different things. Some of you, you like the cold. Some of you, you like it warm. Some of us like certain colors other than other, other colors. Some of us like the music. Some of us don't like the music. Some of us wish it was a little livelier. Some of us wish we'd tone it down. Some of us wish that, that service lasted longer. And some of us wish I'd shut up sooner. We all have different preferences. That's not what Paul's getting after. Paul is saying we need to live in harmony with one another, and the way that we're going to live in harmony is by agreeing in the Lord. One, one writer said that the common mind they are to share in reconciliation and mutual love is one which sets the good of the church above personal interest and finds its inspiration in the lowliness of the incarnate Lord and the standard He expects of His people. The reason I brought it up, that the, the, the uniqueness of this weekend with these three events, we're obviously finishing, we'll finish the service and we'll come to the Lord's table and we call it communion because we have fellowship 
uh, with Christ, and we have fellowship with His church at the Lord's table. But also, we had a business meeting. And I think that in the life of a church, there is not one greater example of unity than at a church business meeting. Many of you were here, uh, but if you weren't here, you've been to a business meeting, I'm sure, at some church somewhere. And churches are notorious for having horrible business meetings, aren't they? They can be fist fights and name calling and, and uh, feelings getting hurt and, and, and all sorts of horrible things happening and churches split over things that go on at business meetings. Now our business meeting, we came, we did not expect everybody to think alike on every issue, which is why when we say, what do you think about it? We had lots of, di- lots of different opinions. Nobody was surprised by that. Well, I think that uh, we should do this. Well, no, I think that we should do this. Uh, I think we should do the mixture of the two, or, or, or the option Z, whatever it may be. Nobody is surprised by that. But here's where unity settles in. And, and here's where I thank God for the church that we have. And we're not, we're not looking at this passage because we need to fix a problem. We're looking at this passage because we need to keep going what we enjoy already, and that is unity. Here's where it really matters most. When we disagree, when your side doesn't get the vote, when what you wanted doesn't actually go through, how do you respond? You Odia and Syntyche don't know what their problem was. Maybe it was in a church business meeting that something bad happened. Maybe it was something trivial over which flowers they were going to put on the communion table that Lord's Day. Maybe it was something big. We don't know. But we do know that something continued to go on. And it it festered. And they they were seething. Maybe they were not speaking to each other. Maybe they were beginning to amass uh, an army of of followers over there. You agree with me, right? You're you're against Euodia, right? She's she's wrong on this one. She needs to to come to her senses, whatever it may be. Here's where we find the, the health of a church. When it doesn't go your way, how do we respond? And what we find here, it didn't go everybody's way. Not every, we made eight, six or seven decisions. Not everything went everybody's way, but how did we respond? We said, for the good of the church, that's what we'll do. I didn't vote for that, but we're going to go forward. One of the things that was brought to my attention when I moved here five years ago, uh, some people were talking to me and saying, yeah, we did that. I didn't want it that way. I voted that way. But you know, I voted differently, but the church decided to go this way. And you know what? It ended up being better that way anyways. My way wasn't best. Now, we like our opinions, and the reason we hold to our opinions is because we think they're the right opinions. Right? You don't hold to your opinion because you think it's dumb. You think yours is a good idea. And you think that yours is so good that everybody else should think the way you do. But these people just don't get it. And they think differently. How dare they think differently, right? We don't expect people to to agree with us 100% of the time. We just want them to go along with us. When it comes to church and people don't think like we do, what do we do? Now, praise God, this is a church with enough mature people in it that said, you know what, it didn't go my way, but it's not about me. It's not what I want. It's not about my choice. It's not about my preference. It's not about what music I want or what color carpet I want, or if we even have carpet, we do tile instead. It doesn't matter what I want. It matters what is the best thing for our church. What is the best thing for our testimony to the, to the world around us? I came across this quote. I thought it was very interesting. Sinclair Ferguson wrote uh, in his commentary, how effectively we handle these differences may say more about the biblical character of our church life 
than how we handle heresies. Now think about that for a moment. Heresies are a big deal. I mean, we're talking about, is Jesus God or not? And if someone says, Jesus is not God, we say, that's heresy. We say, well, the Bible is not the Word of God. We say, that's heresy. We are pretty much decided on what we believe is truth and what we do not believe. But here's where the rubber meets the road. Because that's all been settled. And when those issues come along, and sometimes they do come along in the life of a church, we have to deal with them, and we have to think alike. And sometimes we will have to cause a, a, a strife uh, or uh, approach someone and, and, and rebuke them, or, or uh, even as we read there, we, we remove them because of heresy. But how we handle our differences, the things that really don't matter in the, in the long run, the things that don't make eternal difference, those speak volumes about the light, the biblical character of a church. Why must the ladies agree? For the gospel's sake. Because that's what Paul has been getting at this whole time. It's, it's about the gospel. It's about Christ. I don't care if I'm in prison. The gospel is advancing. Ladies, doesn't matter if you get your way. Is the gospel advancing? Is Christ being made known? Is Christ being glorified? These ladies had to learn to set aside their differences, reset their thinking. Not time to leave the church, as sometimes people will do. Well, it didn't go my way. I guess I'll go somewhere where they see it my way. You're never going to find that place. You're never going to find a church that's perfect. If you do, don't join it, because you're going to mess it up. Just as you messed up our church. No, it was already messed up. It was already messed up when you got here. It was messed up on day one when the charter members, and they're all dead now, uh, they, all, they all signed and said, we'll belong to this church. It became a sinful church. You just joined it. And the only way that we're going to have a church that never has any problems is if we only allow perfect people into our membership. And if that's the case, we need to have another business meeting and vote all of ourselves out. This idea of reconciliation is a New Testament theme. James writes about it. Oh, I'm sorry, Titus uh, 3.10. Paul writes to Titus about it. Is when one stirs up division within the church, you are to go to that person and warn them. You're not supposed to just sit back and watch the fireworks happen. Man, I can't wait to see when God strikes that person dead. No, you go to that person and you warn them. You speak to them. Jesus in Matthew 5. Remember when He said, you're, you're standing at the altar, you're about to offer your gift, you're sacrificing, you're worshiping God, and all of a sudden you remember that you have a problem with your brother or your brother has a problem with you. What do you do? Do you finish up your worship and then go and make it right? No. He says, leave your gift at the altar. Go make it right with your brother. And He says in Matthew 5.24, first be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. The, the, the passage we read in Matthew 18 just a moment ago. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It's a mature mindset, but we deal with our issues. We don't just let it sit and fester. We deal with them. We, we, we go to that person in love, in humility, and recognizing I may not have it all right either, but there's a problem. We need to get this out. We need to fix this. Not so that I can be the winner or someone can be declared the loser, but so that the gospel can go forward, that this petty minor issue does not become the thing that stifles our gospel witness. Does not become a thing that will cause someone to stumble. 
Maybe a weaker brother that sees us fighting is going to see this and it's going to cause him to fall away. Can't do that. It's not worth it. So we're going to make this right. And even being silent about it. Now there's a difference here. When someone offends us, when someone does something we don't like, and it's going to happen because we're a church full of sinners and we're in close community with one another. And when it happens that someone steps on our toes or we step on someone else's toes and there's a problem and you can't just let it go. You can't forgive it and let it go. But you're like, I'm not going to go to that person and I'm not going to make it right. I'm not going to chew them out either, but I'm certainly just going to let it sit and fester in my soul. And it's going to build up in me and I'm collecting. I've got a book and I'm writing, I'm taking down names of all the people that have ever offended me. Listen to what Moses writes in Leviticus. Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That sounds reasonable. But, he says, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. You shall not take... Oh, I'm sorry, he goes on. You shall, not, uh, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. My brother did something and it bothers me making me angry, making me mad. And I'm just going to let it sit. I'm not going to talk to him about it. I'm just going to let it sit and fester. And Moses writes in the law that that will incur sin on you because of him. Because you will not go and frankly reason with him. Be upfront. Be honest. Be transparent. Be humble and say, we've got something we've got to deal with. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. I wish we didn't have to do it. I can't just let it go. Something's got to be done. He says, reason frankly with him. And he goes on to say, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we recognize that that last phrase is the second great commandment, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, in this particular issue, when there's a problem, you go to him and you reason frankly with him and you don't bear a grudge. That's higher level than the average Christian today. I don't think that that's necessarily representative of this group of people here. But let us ask ourselves in our own hearts, is that how we respond? Do we sit and passively just absorb all of this and stew on it? Or do we go to a person privately first as Yodia and Sintike are being, are being urged to do and make this right? But then sometimes it needs a third party. Sometimes you need outside help. And this is where we get to verse number three, and we see that uh, this, this new third party is being brought in. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Paul now seeks the help of a, what he just calls a true companion to get involved. There's a lot of ink spilled on trying to define who this guy is. Some think that it's actually the guy's name. His name meant true companion, and so then his name is Sisygus. I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't think it is, actually. Something that Paul is referring to as pastor, the pastor of the church. Something that Paul is referring to Timothy or Luke or even Paul's wife. Now, some of those don't make sense because other scriptures tell us that Timothy wasn't with them and Paul didn't have a wife. So, we, 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 there's a lot of different, different opinions out there and it doesn't matter. Here's what we do know. Sisygus, whoever he is, whoever the true companion is, he knew who he was. When Paul wrote to the true companion, he knew, oh, he's talking to me. And the church knew, he's talking to me. It might be that Paul was referring to the whole church. We don't know. But here's the thing. This Sisygus, this true companion, was a true companion in the way that he helped. 
What does it mean to help? An interesting way that Paul uses this word here, because to help doesn't just mean to come alongside and, you know, give him a hand, be the referee. To help here, he means to take hold of together. To come to this party, to take hold of this party. To come to this party and to take hold of this party. It also means to help by taking part with someone in their activity. To help by taking a hold of. To help by taking part in. To involve himself. And we say, yeah, it's none of your business. It is in the church. It is when it's, when it's threatening the unity of the church. It is when it's threatening the, the testimony of the gospel outside of these walls. It is when the world sees Christians bickering and arguing over anything. It is your business. One of the things that we talk about in the church membership class, many of you have gone through it and you've heard me say it, when you request church membership, you are asking us to get in your business. And you're, we're asking you to get in ours. And if you don't want to be in each other's business or someone to get in your business, then you need to think about why you joined a church. Why did you join a church if not to encourage and to provoke one another to love and to good works? That's why we're here. It is worth getting involved. If you've ever had to be that person to step into an argument to try to help, you know that that's tough. That is awkward. Nobody's like, I love this. I know one who might like it. But nobody loves that because it, you're sticking your own neck out. You're risking offending. You're risking them hating you. But, they, but this true companion was urged to do it or asked to do it for the gospel's sake. For these ladies' sake, but for the gospel's sake. For the church of Philippi's sake. For Christ's sake. And notice here, as even Paul delivers this criticism to these ladies, he affirms them and encourages them. Because he didn't say, hey, these ladies, you need to kick them out of the church. These ladies, they're, they're good for nothing. These ladies, I mean, they're just, they're, they're just being stupid here. No, what, is, what does he say? He says, these ladies have labored side by side with me in the gospel. These are co-laborers. These ladies have, have labored. They've sweat and cried and bled for the gospel's sake, just like everybody else. And he lists this Clement and he lists the rest of the fellow workers. He says, they've, they've been right along. It's very possible that these were two of the original ladies that Paul met at the riverside with Lydia in Acts 16. We don't know that, but if we can imagine a little bit, it's, like, it's possible. I don't know if it's likely, but it's possible. These ladies could be charter members of the church. They could be very influential members of the church. It doesn't matter where they were in the hierarchy of the church. These two ladies were valuable. They were valued by Paul and were valuable to the church. And Paul said, we've got to help them. You've got to get involved. But notice also that it's not just because they're valuable in that way, because they're, they're workers, but because their names are in the book of life. They're sisters. They're family. You don't just cast them aside. You don't just let them go. Well, they can fight it out among themselves. They're sisters. They're sisters to each other. They're our sister as well. We show love. They belong to God. They are loved by God. Their names are in the same book of life that yours is, that mine is. 
We have our name written in the book of every believer. And these two ladies are sisters to us. And if they were alive today and belonged to this church, they would be dearly beloved. They would be sisters and people whom we should help. This is this, this act of being a third party and helping those who are in disagreement is very biblical. We had read to us Matthew 18, and I read to you just one of the verses a minute ago where Jesus says there, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And Jesus says, if he listens to you, it's great, you've gained your brother. But next step, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that's a Sisygus, that's a true companion, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We, we don't involve everybody right away. First, we try to handle it among ourselves. Secondly, we bring in a third party if we need to, to help that situation. And hopefully it gets resolved right there because the next step is to bring it to the church. Which, by the way, is a case for church membership. But we have here a recipe for unity within our church. Let's just think about it in our, in our own context just for a few moments. How are we going to handle disagreements in the church? And if you have not ever had a disagreement with anybody in the church, it's because it's your first Sunday. It's going to happen. You keep coming back. Someone's going to say something that offends you. Someone's going to say something that hurts your feelings. You're going to say something that hurts someone else's feelings. James says, if any man offends not in tongue, the same is a perfect man. If you believe that you've never caused anybody any grief or no one's ever going to cause you any grief, it's because you believe you're perfect. What are we going to do? Well, when the disagreement is ours, and sometimes that'll be the case, we need to agree in the Lord. We need to strive for the same mindset. And in order to do that, that involves humility. It involves being willing to listen and being willing to admit when you're wrong. It involves humility even when you go to the other person when you know you are in the right and to not lord it over them. It's going to involve a gospel mindset because you're not here to be a winner. You're here to advance the gospel of Christ. It's going to involve a Christ-like attitude because this is what Jesus did. We need to remember we are brothers and sisters here co-laborers together, side by side, in the gospel. We are saints in Christ. Our names are in the book of life. We need to remember that Christ's church and his gospel matter more than my desires and preferences. Sometimes we're going to be that third party. We're going to be Sisygus. We're going to be the true companion, and we're going to be called upon to step in to help disagreeing brothers and sisters. Some of you are smiling because you know, you know what that's like. You've been there. It's not fun. What are we going to do? We must be willing to get involved. Not so that we can be nosy, so we can know everybody's business, so we can be busybodies because that's, that is taught against in the Scriptures. But for the sake of those people, for the sake of our church, for the sake of the gospel itself, we must be then in community have to be around each other. 
We have to love each other. We can't just be attenders at church. We must be in community, which is why we have our fellowship lunches. It's why we, we do these extra things. It's why I encourage you to stick around after church and talk to people. Don't just take off right away. Uh, show up early. Come to Sunday nights this summer if we, if we can have some, some events where we'll get together on Sunday nights. Show up. I know it's extra. It's extra credit, but it's so extra helpful. Come to Sunday night church. We do that every week. Uh, invite people to your house. Be in community with one another so that when the time comes, we have rapport. It has been shown that I care so that if I show up and say, I think we need to talk about something between you and someone else, they know you're there to help. You're not there to make things worse. We need to be mediators and reconcilers. We, as a church, must have unity. And to do that, we must agree in the Lord. And we must help one another. Let me read to you just to finish. When Jesus prayed for His disciples in John 17, He included those who had yet to be born and yet to believe. That's us. Part of His prayer was that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, love them even as you loved me. I thank God that we have a good measure of unity within the church. It's not going to happen accidentally, and those of you who have been here for some time know that it didn't just happen. We work at it. We're constantly addressing ourselves. We're doing the hard work of unity and agreeing in the Lord. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell. In unity. Let me ask you three questions and we'll pray. As we consider our response to what God has spoken through His Word, three questions. First of all, is there a brother with whom you need to be reconciled? Is there someone whom you have offended or who has offended you that you cannot just forgive and let it go? If that is the case, then I encourage you, I implore you, I urge you, let go of your pride, your bitterness or resentment. Those are sins. Confess that sin. And then go and be reconciled to your brother. Second question. Do you have a gospel mindset? What matters most to you? Is it what you want? Is it what I want? That's not good enough either. It's what Christ wants. What does this world need? It needs a unified church. It needs a church that agrees in the Lord, that is focused on the gospel, that makes the main thing the main thing. Secondly, or thirdly, last question. Are you behaving as a true companion? Are you one who is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? 
you're called to do it. Will you? Will you pray for our church to be unified? For the gospel to advance? For God to be glorified? Will you pray for wisdom to know when and how to be a true companion and to help us when we disagree? Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you so much that you have given us these words. Oftentimes, they are words of encouragement, but as much as we need it, there are words of rebuke and admonishment. We find ourselves, at times, in the situation of these dear women. We find ourselves unable to just forgive an offense or because we have caused the offense maybe because of pride or resentment or something else, we have let that fester. Even this morning, primarily because we're coming to the table, these thoughts should be in our minds. Lord, forgive us for our, our lack of humility, our lack of grace to extend to others. You taught us to pray. And you taught us to, to seek your forgiveness as we forgive those who have indebted themselves to us. Help us to do that. Forgive 70 times 7. Lose track of how much because you have forgiven us of a far greater debt. Help us to be true companions to one another. Willing and ready to help it's not, it's not an easy thing to walk the Christian life. You never promised that it would be. But you have given us the church to help us along. So may we be faithful, may we be faithful to our brothers and sisters. May we be faithful to Christ. May we be faithful to the gospel. For Christ's sake. Amen. Our deacons are going to come forward. We're going to come to the table. Just give it.